0: This episode of the Vulture TV podcast is sponsored by Casual. From Academy Award-nominated director Jason Reitman of Juno and Up in the Air comes the new Hulu original series Casual, an offbeat comedy that explores singlehood. The Hollywood Reporter says it's a joy to watch. Casual is streaming now with new episodes every Wednesday, only on Hulu.
1: This episode is brought to you by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi. Hi. Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'll be following a team of elite cryptographers as they decode a highly classified radio transmission. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. The Message on iTunes. Hey, Panoply listener. We've got
0: a live show announcement for you. If you live in D.C., Slate's mom and dad are fighting is having a live taping on October 20th at the Woolly Mammoth Theater. Join us for an evening of banter about the triumphs and fails, but mostly fails, of parenting. For more information, check out slate.com slash live. The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: Hello and
2: welcome to the Vulture TV podcast. I'm your host, Gazella Mommy. On this week's episode, we're mixing things up a little bit with an interview with Amy Brenneman, star of The Leftovers. We'll be talking about seasons one and two and focusing on episode three that aired Sunday night.
3: We will win. We are going to beat them. This is working.
2: I'm here, as always, with Vulture TV columnist Margaret Lyons and Vulture TV critic Matt Zoller-Seitz. Hey, Gazelle. Hi. And Amy, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. You have had such an interesting career from NYPD Blue to Heat to private practice to creating your own show, judging Amy and starring in it. And I was curious how the leftovers playing a role like Lori, which is such a unique role,
3: has has differed from from any other character you've played. I had never encountered any character like Lori over the years. I've gotten to do so many interesting things. Um, so you look for new challenges. So I thought, well, I haven't seen that. And that scares me. So I guess I should do it. And then also in the different projects that come my way, sometimes I have ideas and I am sort of throwing the party. And and sometimes I just meet people and are led by them. And so when I met Damon, it was like, you're interesting. I'll go where Mm -hmm. you want me to go.
2: Were you at all put off by the
3: fact that the role was silent for a lot of the first season? No, he was really upfront with it. I mean, he said, I mean, you know, I was utterly charmed by Damon. He's a very charming person. And he said, "Um, here are the reasons why you shouldn't play this role. And I said, okay. And he said, "Um, it shoots in New York. You wear no makeup and you have no lines. And I was like, sign me (laughs) up, man. That sounds great. (laughs) Um, So I was interested. And and even the... um, Even the look of it uh, was, was, you know, I'm not a particularly vain actress or a protective actress, but the level that I was stripped down was also uh, something new. And also I had just come from Shondaland where we were just like protected like little pieces of wrapped chocolate. (laughs) I mean, you really, you know, so to go from that, I was like, Woo, I had whiplash.
2: I'm curious if you
3: thought very consciously about your inner monologue as Laurie, because you're
2: playing her silently so much. Were you, did you try to think like Lori and what she might be,
3: what her thought process might be in certain what situations? What she might be saying if yeah. she was speaking? Like, were you speaking Laurie in your head? Sure, sure. I mean, it's funny. When you said that, I, I um... I'm involved for a variety of reasons with um, disability activism and I have several nonverbal friends or, you know, who use devices or whatever. They're talking all the time. You know what I mean? I mean, they're, they just can't do particularly what we're doing right now. But the communication is pretty clear. And then the other thing I did, I read Tom Parada's book and we were told, don't read the book because because um, what we're doing is so different. I was like, I have to read the mm-hmm. book. And about half of the book is Lori's thoughts. Now, our Laurie is quite different from, from the Laurie in the book, but but it, it got me, it jump-started me into kind of thinking like her. And yeah, I mean, basically, I said early on to Damon, you know, Laurie's written obviously very enigmatically, very mysteriously, very threateningly, but I don't really do enigmatic badass. I can do a different kind of badass, but I, I, I think the story is this woman is trying to be a good guilty remnant and she's not succeeding. And one of the reasons she's not succeeded is because she's a natural empath. I mean, there's you know, I mean, they talk about it pretty overtly, like don't feel, cut yourself off, be tough. So I said, I think what you're going to watch is my face move around as if I'm talking and I'm not talking. Mm-hmm. But there's there's quite a bit of dialogue going there internally.
4: It's not a lack of communication. Correct. Right. I think we get a good read, at least I, I think I am getting a good read, on what she's thinking and communicating. Right. Is there a concern about playing somebody so sad on such a heavy, sad show? I think the first season was just very... It was a lot. Was there any kind of trepidation of like, ooh, I don't know if I want to get it, like go to a party this big of a bummer?
3: (laughs) Sure. And, you know, because we're all kind of goofballs, so it's like, was it intense? I was like, it was intense when it rolled. And then, you know, I'd like, you know, make fart jokes with Chris Silka. I mean, it was like, (laughs) you know, we're actors. I do feel, although, although, you know, I always, I am not particularly method. And in fact, I could sort of talk about why I'm not. But you almost don't have to try the... the, um, It Inevitably, it's like the culture of the shooting of the thing takes on the character of the thing. So even as I was trying to be like, hey, it's not getting to me, I was constantly alone in vans going to random locations by myself at 3 in the morning in the frigid winter. I was like, I feel bad for me. And (laughs) I'm shooting the leftovers, so I guess that fits right in. Um, Yeah, I think at times it was like, wow, is this like just, you know, you know, it's like a sad chord on a guitar that we're playing all the time. Mm-hmm. I was
0: watching the first couple of episodes, and it occurred to me that although you have these specific challenges, you have had these specific challenges where you have to communicate an idea, you have to communicate with other actors without using, without speaking with your voice, large sections of this show are basically a silent movie. Right. And in fact, there's a whole long, a couple of long sequences in, in this one that just aired. Where there's not a word of dialogue spoken. And in fact, I think, what is it, the first like eight minutes of the, mm-hmm. of the opener this season.
4: Yeah. And then season, and episode three, too, where she's watching the car and writing the book and we see, I mean, it's long. It's, it's a long. lot it's of a no long. talking. So, so
0: you're doing a lot of silent, <laughs> like you're doing a lot of silent film acting, even if that's not explicitly the point of the scene.
3: That's right. Yeah.
0: How do you navigate the moments where characters from The Guilty Remnants are holding up written notes? Are there ever moments where you huddle and say, do we really need a note for this? Have you ever tried to find a workaround, like, can we say this without having to write it down?
3: Uh, We didn't do that. We tried to make writing—I mean, you become really self-conscious, like— I hope watching me write is interesting. <laughs> it takes me a while to make the letter G, but I guess that's you're what I'm always, doing. Actually, you're always so curious what it's going right, to say. That's so right, that's right. builds drama That's that way. right. No, we didn't do that, but it's funny when because I'm not producing and I'm not in the editing room and I have no idea what I'm going to see. I watch it like you guys watch. The filmmaking really knocked me out, you know, from the pilot on. I was like, oh, okay, so whatever. And, you know, all of us... And even just in this year, more than last year, all of us are a piece of this mosaic. You know, nobody, no one actor is sort of carrying it. So enjoy that, you know, be part of the mosaic and know that you're going to be held. I mean, I think the reason, you know, when you're you're only acting and not producing, you know, the reason that we hold back or get paranoid is like, can we trust the filmmaking? Am I in good hands? You know, and the minute I saw the pilot, I was like, oh, these are some beautiful filmmakers. And there's so much more humanity than I would have expected because on the page, it's, very dark, nihilistic, violent. So it's like, okay, is this going to be like a Quentin Tarantino thing, where it's like, oh, we're going to get off on how violent it is? And then I saw that pilot, I was like, oh no, this is sad. Like this, Damon's going for a bigger idea. Like it costs people to be violent. You know, there's nothing. Nobody's getting off on it.
0: You also have some. You do have some really formidable filmmakers on this. Mimi Letter is somebody who I don't think still has gotten her due, even though she's been doing this for a really long time. But the second episode this season was amazing. And then you've got Carl Franklin on the third. Can you tell me a little bit about him? He he, he directed One False Move and yeah. a mil- million other things. Devil in a Blue Dress. Yeah.
3: And- he was an amazing, um, yeah, because he's such a cool cat, you know. But then he'd, <laughs> right when I needed it, he'd go, Yeah, don't believe it. I was like... <gasps> OK, <laughs> that's my one thing. I got to make you believe it. He also had this uh, awesome moment, you know, because we're also freaking exhausted all the time. So it's like four in the morning. And we're doing that sequence where I get in the car after I've had my little victory thing mm-hmm. and um, I'm happy. And then, you know, I end up, you know, mowing down the GR. So there's this mount, there's this camera mount that um, doesn't seem entirely safe to me, but because I'm actually driving. And the camera wow. mount is sort of like – it's like camera mounts are supposed to be to the side or something. Angela, the AD, is going to kill me. She's like, it is safe. I wouldn't put you in there if it was safe. <laughs> so I'm driving on an actual road with this camera mount. But I get in the car and there's Carl Franklin sitting in the passenger seat. I was like, what are you doing? And, he, and he's like eating some salami, you know, crap. It's like three in the morning. I was like, what are you doing in the car? And he said, he said well, I thought I'd talk you through it. Do you mind? And I said – no, like uh, that's cool. Like, because he's like, yeah, I just know the timing. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> There's Carl Franklin going, like, yeah. You're feeling good. <laughs> You're feeling real good. You turn on the radio. Yeah, that's my jam. What the fuck is that? I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> it was the best. I mean, I kind of wanted to laugh, but, like, we finished the day. I was like, dude, I want you in my ear. Like, Car- you know, Marlon Brando. I want Carl Franklin in my ear. Like, that's
2: right. That's so, that's so you're funny you say me. that. That's now Laurie's exactly, inner monologue well, forever. Oh my god! I <laughs> it's exactly exactly it. what comes across when watching you. <laughs> right? like, it's like, you Carl Franklin like, you're feeling that they way? They should just every time they go
0: to a close-up of you, you hear oh Carl god. Franklin.
3: Well, also because I didn't realize—I wow, didn't, frankly, I didn't realize it was that close-up. So I, my first thought was like, it's Carl in the shop? <laughs> like there's Laurie and some like incredibly handsome African American guy. Like what? No, so, I don't know. Mountain post. You Yeah, exactly. He's in the green suit.
4: Were there any misfires? Are there any things that you sort of, oh, I bet Lori's feeling this way, and then Damon or whoever's directing the episode was like, ooh, that's not what I was thinking at all?
3: Oh, a lot, a lot, a lot. You know, especially last year we, as we were sort of talking about her backstory and the template. I mean, I always would go soft, and Damon would always say, like, mm, no. You know, like, I, I couldn't quite get the abandoning the children piece. And and I realize that's cultural because like in, you know, other movies and TV, I mean, dudes leave their kids all the time. And then there's this big Sam Shepard, like, I loved you all along. You know, a woman, you know, (laughs) know. a woman leaves her kids. It's Hester Prynne time. I mean, it's like a big, big deal. And I am a mom and it's hard to imagine and blah, blah, blah. So I remember saying to Damon, you know, I think the only reason I could have joined the Guilty Remnant is – I said, I think I was going to kill myself. Like, I think that my being around them, I was doing so poorly that I had to justify it in terms of what was good for the kids. And he was like, I don't know about that. He's like, I think Lori's always been a seeker. And it like, literally, I felt like a bad feminist. I was like, oh, my God, I'm still in the paradigm of mother, good mother. Even if I do something, it's about being a good mother. And he always pushes me to not sentimentalize.
0: I always felt like watching her that she didn't know why she did it.
3: Really? And she just did it. <laughs> That's yeah, unfortunate because yeah. like...
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um... <laughs> No, I mean in the sense that, you know, if you asked her to explain it, it wouldn't be easy.
3: Right. I mean, I think that was part of what was gratifying about episode three in this season. It's like, oh, great, I get to sort of explain to the, to the best extent I can. We have this awesome backstory and it's like, God, I, I feel like... You can tell us everything. <laughs> I know. Even if there is a even if there is a um, Please. season three. I don't see us sort of doing a solve flashback. every mystery right but, now. <laughs> <laughs> but the idea is like that the departure happens, Lori is going great guns, like the way she does. She's shrinking the town. Basically everybody's mm-hmm. coming to her. She's talking about PTSD. She's giving out meds. She's la la la. And then Patty starts to stalk me, right? So there's Patty Levin and I'm shrinking and I'm counseling and all that. But I always said to Damon, I think there was a moment where the words turned to dust in my mouth because this is unprecedented. Like the whole reason, the whole way pastoring or counseling works is I can talk to you from experience or this is based on blah, blah, blah. The whole way that the departure has spun everybody is it's unprecedented in human history. So I always thought like that's when I stopped talking. And until I had something of value to say, I was not going to speak. And then and then I do think that GR works on you. Like here it's like there's this alternative. You know, if you don't know where to go, like go hang out. I mean, I sort of took it like, you know, I studied, you know, Eastern philosophies a lot and it's like there's a tradition of like going to a monastery for a little while. Doesn't mean you're a monk forever, right? You go for like a year or two. You get your shit together. You t- you you remove yourself from the world. So, I kind of thought that's the way she had backed into it and then I think the over the course of last season as it becomes more and more violent, you know. I think that's the moment where it's like I, I didn't know this. I didn't. What sign is up your this. What
0: is your personal read on what they're about? On what the the guilty remnants are about?
3: You know, some of this is. Um you know, Parada wrote this in response to 9-11, and, and I think that in a really simplistic way, it's like, okay, the people are like, no, it is our patriarch duty to go back to the way things were. So go to the mall, do whatever. And then there's the people that said it's a game changer. So I think the GR stands for we have to always remember. Like not only remember who was lost, but remember we live in a world that is different.
4: Are there things on your sort of Lori bucket list that you like hope – occur on the show because you're dying to see that character and sort of have the chance
3: to play her through certain scenarios? Yeah, a lot. I mean, what happens after the end of Three when this movement grows around Tom, my son? Mm -hmm. We see some of that. I would like to see more of that. I'm super interested in how cults, how prophets, how that gains traction, you know, the mechanisms of that.
2: That scene... We first see Tommy and Lori talking about how they have to give people something. Do you feel that this is kind of similar to what the guilty remnant is doing and that they're heading into dangerous
3: territory by offering Tommy as this miracle worker? No, I think it's quite different. Listen, anybody that joins the guilty remnant needs a whole lot of something, right? So Lori misguidedly, and she does have the support group, but misguidedly thinks, I'm going to explain to you through rationality why these people are full of shit and help you reintegrate with your life. And that will be that. What Tom's saying is there's a huge hole. And whether they go back to their family or not, they need something. So what we sort of concoct is more of a healing. I mean, the guilt, the, the GR is all about nihilism and take away, take away, take away. And we are, it's like, listen, we are in human bodies. We have broken hearts. We have warm skin that needs to be touched. We're going to work with it.
2: Well. We're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsors, but when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about Sunday night's episode.
3: This episode of the Vulture
0: TV podcast is sponsored by Casual. From Academy Award-nominated director Jason Reitman of Juno and Up in the Air comes his first television series, the new Hulu original, Casual, a comedy about a brother, sister, and her teenage daughter exploring singlehood together. The Boston Globe calls it wise, amusing, and poignant, and The Hollywood Reporter says it's a joy to watch. Casual is streaming now, with new episodes available every Wednesday, only on Hulu.
2: So, in this episode, I was curious about the moments when we see Lori washing her car, because it comes up over and over again, and then there's this one moment where you kind of become obsessed with this little spot on the car and try and wipe it away. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about those scenes.
3: You know, I think it's a little Lady Macbeth. I mean, I think it's evidence of this not-great practice that she's in. When I first heard like, oh, yeah, Lori runs, you know, runs over the GR, I was like, really? (laughs) (laughs) But I think it's a little bit more nuanced than that because I think that there's this game of chicken. I think I really want to wake people up to the fact that, you know, it's like it's like encountering people that are drinking Jim Jones's Kool-Aid. I mean, it's like wake up, wake up. And if almost being hit by a car is going to wake you up, that's what we're going to do. I mean, it's like a Zen master slapping you, you know. But then it's like, they don't move. They don't move. They are so, they don't care about bodily harm. They're jihadists. I mean, they're willing to burn, you know? So I think that it's this, like, strange little itch that I go back. It's like, come on, come on, come on. Yeah. And then there's evidence the morning. I mean, it's almost like a, a bender. It's like I ate a big, you know, box of entomans or something. <laughs> I hate myself in the morning.
2: This episode, you know, we start to see different sides of Lori and her anger, did you and Damon talk about your state of mind going into this episode?
3: We didn't. I mean, I, I feel like what what I like about season two, and, you know, to your point, it's like, okay, if season one is we're just sort of, like, paralyzed and flattened by shock and grief, right? Season two, everybody's getting busy, right? I mean, Carrie taking coon taking action. Yeah. It's like, Justin's like, let's move. Carrie Coon buys a house. I'm like, I write a book. Like, everybody gets a little manic, and it's like, if I can do this thing— then everything will be okay. Like, I don't know how it's going to be okay, but everything's going to be okay. And yet, you know, when you're in that state, there's all of this, like, boiling emotion that you're tamping down. It's like, if I can ma- if I can get that goal, I don't know how, but everything will be okay. So I think as that crumbles, then I cannot maintain <laughs> anymore, basically.
0: The scene where you're talking about your manuscript and the editor uh, William Mathouther,
4: Oh yeah. Uh, He's uh,
0: Damon Lindelof veteran is oversimplifying what oh, it's yeah. about and sort of asking it to be obvious. It almost felt like it was a commentary on the show that you're on.
3: <laughs> like, when people
0: are so crazy for explanations, and in a way, like, they were kind right. of crazy for explanations with Lost right. as well. Right, And Lost tried to give it to them, and they were mad when they got the explanation. That's right, yeah. yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit, about that whole scene?
3: Yeah, I mean, that guy is unbelievable. Are you kidding? Um, yeah, well, I think it's like an artist who has something kind of complicated to say and, and you know, somebody asking you about your dress and the red carpet. You know, and I think it's played out so beautifully because it's devastating, this news that I get, that this woman that I tried to help, I mean, I, I think it's a moment of of loss and real what the fuck am I doing kind of thing. And I do, you know, to Lori's credit, she's about to get out of the meeting. Like, I am in no state to be in this meeting. Mm-hmm. And then life sort of carries her along. So, yeah, I think your assessment's kind of interesting of, like, I can't begin to describe where I'm at and I'm certainly not getting any mercy right now. I think what Damon plays with, which is so up my alley, is dream logic and the logic of the psyche and the logic of longing and spirit, right? So the head is like, what does it mean? What does it mean? You know, but the head is also like making laundry lists. I mean, the head is like, okay, ego, you're very busy with your stuff. And meanwhile, the psyche is longing to be expressed, like quite literally longing. I think he's playing with that sort of levels of of Mm -hmm. connection.
0: And sometimes when people ask you for explanations of things, they ask you to boil it down to a sentence. What you tell them is not true or it's it's oversimplifying or whatever. And I get that a lot as a critic. Margaret does, too, where people want to see things explained. And they get very angry if there are different explanations for a thing or if you keep insisting that no explanation is possible.
3: Right. Damon's been quite clear. Like, that is not the point of this piece. The point of this piece (laughs) is how we live with mystery. And you know what? My dear father died of ALS. It's like, why did he get it? I don't know. He's like the healthiest guy in the world, you know? Mystery, mystery, mystery. How do we we come together in community? You know, do we surrender to it? Do we get mad at it? Do we do all sorts of things? And there's no right or wrong. But it's like the idea that we live in a fully explained universe is a joke. You know, there's a million... I don't know how my toaster works, you know? (laughs) So, you know, again, like, how do we... The human behavior around mystery, I think, is what, what we're really exploring.
4: I feel like a lot of, especially in season two, there's a lot of tension between real and surreal, and a lot of things that don't seem possible have happened, and a lot of things that should be very normal are very odd, and things that are very odd are very commonplace, and I feel like that's sort of the, one of the, like the underlying ideas of the show is, is sort of grappling with that, but does that make it hard to play something that's real when there's a real question for the whole sort of atmosphere
3: of the show of what real looks like? Uh, such a good question. I mean, a lot, a lot of that they do in post. I mean, quite seriously. Like we, we sort of do the scene as human beings, you know. But then, yeah, suddenly in episode one, it's like the cricket. Oh my God, the cricket! You know, it like becomes this portent or something. But that's brilliant filmmaking. I mean, that is brilliant filmmaking. Are you
0: party to that when it's being shot? Like, there's going to be a cricket later.
3: Uh, yeah, yeah. But like, you know, it's uh, Kevin Carroll who plays John Murphy. He's an old buddy of mine. I think he's so brilliant and. And I said, you know, the warmth that John Murphy has and the funny, and he's like, yeah, I felt kind of weird, but I always thought that moment was funny. I was like, it's fantastic. It plays beautifully because we don't know what's sinister and what's funny and what's the everyday is suddenly suspect. And, you know, this shaking and rocking and rolling, it's like, it's so bizarre. It's like, is it? I live in California. (laughs) The earth shakes all the time. (laughs) It shakes all the time. You guys live in fracking land. You know what I mean? So, oh, it's so strange. Like, I guess, (laughs) you know, we're also burning up the ozone. I mean, I wrote a little blog about sort of how I see the most productive way to view the leftovers, which is sort of surrender to the mystery a little bit. And I said, you know, there was a... Another shooting that day. I was like, wow, they say the Leftovers is dark? you got to be kidding me. I mean, the Leftovers were grappling toward the light. Like, like in terms of guns, it's like, well, we're all sort of giving up. Like, well, that's just the cost of doing business, 88 people a day. Like, you look at that, it's like, is that surreal? Yeah. Or is that what we just decide is normal? I don't know.
2: I wanted to talk a little bit about your relationship with Tommy, the character, and also with the actor Chris Zilka. You guys have such an interesting chemistry. And we actually have a clip here of... Tommy coming back from being abused by Meg and uh, you and him have a a little fight.
0: It's fucking useless, you know. What?
1: The program, the meetings, what we're doing. It's not working, Mom. tell me what happened. What happened is I'm in there. I'm in there with them, but you forgot what it's like.
3: They make sense. They know something. No, that's it. You're done. You're done. You are not going back in there and you don't need to. They are going to publish my book, Tommy. And when people read about what's going on in those houses, we will win. We are going to beat them. This is working. Sweetie, this is working.
2: So in this scene I and in this whole episode, you know, you guys are kind of like a team now. I'm curious what your
3: dynamic is like. I love Chris Silka. Acting with him is like, it's like, We Neither of us have any skin. We're just very, very connected. And he is so beautiful inside and out. He's got this crazy combination of very masculine and beautiful muscles and beautiful face and a softness that is really compelling. And I had my kids visit me at various and sundry times in New York, and he was very moved by that and interested in my kids. Very sweet. Well, he didn't quite get the mothering that he could have used when he was growing up. And so the idea of just watching a functional mother was interesting to him. And so I get to mother him. I mean, I get, I, there's no other way to put it. It's like, that's why I love what I do, because there's moments when people are open to it. And, and Chris and I are open to it where we get to communicate about real stuff using the prop of a of wow. script. Do
2: you feel that with a lot of people, not mothering necessarily, but that kind of connection?
3: I do. I mean, I was so happy that I had so much with Ann Dowd, who's just, you know, once again. Tremendous. Steals the fucking, you know, season right from
2: under us. She was on Judging Amy as well, She was on Judging
3: Amy, yeah. And so she and I are, are extremely simpatico and have a lot of kind of similar life elements. You know, I mean, what's weird about Leftovers is there's... Like I was hanging out with Janelle Maloney last week. He's like, I love you. I wish I had scenes with you. I mean, I always yeah. say, like, "We this cast loves one another, and we're never in the same room. Ever, 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 <laughs> ever, you know? Yeah. So if if anything, I, it just makes me want more.
2: I've said on the show before what really attracted me to the show was the acting. Everyone is just really bringing their all. Matt, you also noted how it feels like no one has gotten to play such interesting
0: yeah, I actually characters. got like not to t- not to take anything away from anybody's performance, which I do feel is great in the moment. But what I get most of all from the show is a sense of like gratitude, mm. like radiating off of the screen. Like all of the actors seem so excited to be able to play something that is complicated and difficult, and not like what you see all the time. Right. And and it's not choosing the obvious way to deliver the story to deliver the points. It's, you know, a lot of cases you're, you know, you're acting silently, not just the Guilty Remnants people, right. but you have to act with your body. You have to act with the frame and the way the camera is moving. And that's something that television doesn't often do because they don't have the time to do it right. That's right. A lot of times you just, shoot, I mean, you know this, you're just shooting the lines and trying to get through the week. and right. and, and this is something on a whole different level.
3: Yeah, I, I feel that way too. And I feel like, you know, there's times when you're given a kind of a simplistic script and your job is to um, deepen it. And there's other times and it more happens in theater where you're like, oh, you know what? Juliet is actually bigger than me. I have to rise to it. And I think we feel that way. Like it's it's we have to rise to it. So in that way, that sort of instinct that you have in other projects where it's like, oh, can we can I help with the script or can I, you know, make this more complicated? It's like, oh, no, no, no. If I'm. If I'm able to do what he wrote, like I'll be yeah. like, that's good. That's probably enough.
0: You alluded earlier to the kinds of instructions or directions that might be in the script and the fact that a lot of times there weren't any. <laughs> Has that changed? Do you prefer to have things be more specific? Because I know a lot of actors chafe at that. If it gets too specific, it's like they're they're not leaving enough room for them to imagine their way into the part.
3: Honestly, every script is really different, and, and we all need to have freedom and sort of feel ownership over the process and our product. But I think because it's sort of how I felt when I did Heat. Like, it's so painterly, and I'm, I'm one small part of a really big thing that I didn't mind Carl Franklin, like, walking me through it. I really liked it, because you know how this is going to be edited together, and I trust you. So I think, again, when you feel like, you know, okay, I'm not being respected as an artist, or I'm being sort of a robot, or—I mean, there's different reasons. It's like, hey, back off. Let me give—give give me a little space. But this, I'm, I'm open to the specifics because I'm part of something that's going to be fit together, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, and, I, and I trust the filmmaking.
2: How is working with Damon Lindelof, how did that compare to working with Shonda Rhimes
3: on Private Practice? You know, not dissimilar, not dissimilar. I mean, Shonda, I found to be a really wonderful collaborator, very respectful. Um, similar to Damon in that the character sort of doesn't exist until it is cast. So I think in the way that Shonda really thought I was Violet, you know, I think Damon really sees me as Lori, which is beautiful. It's like there we we embody what they envision. Yeah, and just very an open open collaborators and um and as I said, you know, because I I know what it is to sort of be more on the show running and on the producing side, I kind of use a similar tool with Damon that I did with Shonda, which is like take this if it's useful. I mean, truly. Like and what is if if there is a script that comes in and I'm baffled by it rather than say I don't like this script I would say to Shonda I don't I don't totally get it like walk me through it and then she'd walk me through it and more times than not I'd say oh my god that's great like n- either now I can play it or she would say wow I guess it isn't clear enough you know but it's it's sort of this Socratic thing like, like talk me through it um, which is what I did with Damon it's like just talk me through it and be as specific as you want to be
2: Let's take one more quick break for a message from our sponsors, and we'll be back to continue the interview with Amy Brenneman.
1: This episode is brought to you by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out. Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s. Have you listened to it yet? Not yet. Uh, We're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now, Um, sounds like a no. Well, we don't really know what it is. Voices, music, breathing. But, you know, I'm not going to mess with that thing. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. Subscribe to The Message on iTunes.
0: Is it possible for you to watch the show as just a viewer? A show that you're on, a show that you are involved in making? And if so, how do you feel about the show? What do you think about the show? Like, what do you make of it?
3: Well, I think this season even more than last, because, you know, we had the premiere in Austin, A week or two ago, and they showed episode one and two. Well, I'm not, I'm basically not in them at all. I mean, there's one tiny, you know, Mm -hmm. but episode one, I'm not in at all. So I had that experience, and I said to Damon, like, it is wild to be like part of something and central in a way, but also be a fan. And I didn't have that nervous, like, I'm going to throw up moment. It's like, oh, my scene's coming. Like, Mm -hmm. how do I look? (laughs) You know, so I got to just watch, and uh, I was super engaged. I also love Damon. I love what we do. So I was like, God, if I didn't know anybody, and I just saw this on HBO, like, would I think it what, what would I think? Like, it's too much, it's super tiny. But the thing that draws me in is there's humanity to it, you know? So as extreme as things get, as you know, sci-fi-ish as things appear, people are trying to stay human in a world that is increasingly feral. And That's like Chekhov. I mean, you know, the big thing about Chekhov is like, oh, they're all heroes because they don't kill themselves. I mean, they talk about how unhappy they are, but the fact that they're still alive makes them heroic. And I kind of think the fact that the characters are still in there and trying to hack it out and do the best they can is pretty beautiful. And I think the GR, again, stands in direct—it's like, don't do that. That's for pussies. You know, don't do that. Like, just go all in. Like, go all goth and negative. So I think that's that's the light and the dark piece, you know, and that's, so when Liv appears, it's like, oh, wow, like that's, that ISIS element, that like jihadist, like, that's alive and well, and it's headed by the beautiful Liv Tyler, clearly.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Well thank you so much for being thank with you. us. Amy. Oh it's a pleasure. It was our pleasure.
0: I almost asked you if you if there we'll ever see any outtakes where you guys play charades. <laughs>
3: oh, I know, I know. So I would
0: think you would be the greatest charades players of all time. <laughs> I
3: know. GR. i know. I'd say, yeah, what I would say to out, I know. I said to Anna <laughs> like, you know, last season it's like, How was the scene? It's like, just made some faces. <laughs> basic, like, don't have any lines, so like here's a face, yeah. like, <laughs> but I did have, I did have. I'm off not, book. I mean, I don't, I don't honestly have any global objection or thoughts on the subject. However, it did occur to me. I mean, I'm not a big botox person, and it occurred to me last year. Like, thank God. Because if all I have is the expression of my face, and half of it was frozen, <laughs> yeah. I mean honestly, work. you wouldn't be, yeah, you wouldn't <laughs> be able to play the role. It's you'd like you'd be fucked, right? Really it's like now she really is enigmatic, but not say, in a like good we, way. I would have solved the total enigma. Project. I know, yeah, <laughs> so like what's happening? I do to know what she's
4: thinking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know. Yeah, her forehead is she's completely just really plastered. It's
3: a choice I've made. she's very with my dermatologist in Beverly Hills to the tune of fifteen hundred dollars.
4: <laughs> Reslin and I have done this together. <laughs> it's my acting
3: choice
2: that's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast don't forget to email us your questions or
4: comments at tvquestions at vulture.com if you like the show we'd love to see you at our very first live taping which is happening Saturday October 24th at 1pm at the Helen Mills Theatre and Event Space on West 26th Street tickets are free and it's part of New York Television Festival you can get those tickets at nytvf.com
2: we'd like to thank Sam Dingman Henry Malofsky, Sarah Abdurrahman Laura Mayer, and Andy Bowers. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. I'm Gazelle Amami, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellephant.
4: I'm Margaret Lyons, and you can find me on Twitter at Margin Charge.
0: I'm Matt Zoller Sites and you can find me on Twitter at Matt Zoller sites
4: Thanks for listening.